and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sanjuk Paul, Assistant Professor of Law at Wayne State University Law School. We will discuss her article, Antitrust as Allocator of Coordination Rights, which will be published in the UCLA Law Review. So welcome to the show, Sanjukta. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, no, I'm delighted to have you on the show. As you know, I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time now, and um, you're a you know a delightfully provocative Twitter presence all the time. And and I I don't think it's going out on a limb at all to say that this paper is pretty provocative as well. Uh, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you get into a lot of really interesting sort of deep theoretical points about antitrust history, antitrust policy, antitrust theory in the paper. But I I was wondering if you could start by helping us sort of understand the frame through which you're looking at at antitrust policy. So when you talk about coordination rights in your paper, what do you mean by coordination rights? Yeah. So, I mean, quite simply, I mean, um, I mean to sort of capture a number of forms of economic coordination that we may take for granted, but that I'm sort of trying to get us to look at as a group or as a category, whether or not they occur within a business firm or not. So um, relevant forms of economic coordination could include joint bargaining, um, simply joint price setting, um, which would be slightly different things, whether you have, you know, control over the product you're selling or not. geographical market allocation, uh, all, of, all of these things are forms of economic coordination. And we tend to split it up a little bit, uh, frankly, according to what our conventional legal categories of coordination have become. So we tend to think about labor unions engaging in collective bargaining, and we tend to think of firms as engaging in price setting. But I suppose by reframing all of this in terms of coordination rights, um, I'm asking us to see sort of the similarities between these things, um, to view them as a group, and then to ask questions in a new way about why we splice up sort of these legal categories of coordination the way that we do. And I have some help in doing that from sort of the way in which in our current moment, some of those traditional categories of coordination have been breaking down um, insofar as there was kind of this compromise or truce roughly embodied by the New Deal order that I think we could say has been breaking down in various ways in, for example, most obviously in the gig economy, right? Um, So we get sort of this like jumbling of forms of economic coordination, like what is actually happening here? Is it price setting? Is it price fixing? Is it collective bargaining, right? And as as firms like Uber, for example, sort of reinvent themselves um, and you might say, we're a technology company and not a transportation company, et cetera, et cetera. Drivers are our customers and not, are not workers, et cetera. So, you know, we, um, including myself in the policy space, spend some time um, pointing out how these different positions are contradictory and um, perhaps hypocritical and that they, different positions should be taken. But from a step back from, I think, an analytical step back from that, it's actually also quite useful because it gets us to um, 
think about what we actually mean by economic coordination and why we treat it the way we do. Well, so Sinjukta, I'm not a antitrust scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I you know, I have been reading a bit in in antitrust law, and I have to say, I haven't seen the term coordination rights used very much in the way that you use it in in your paper. And I'm wondering, I mean, is this a framework through which other antitrust scholars today are tending to look at the problems and questions you're addressing? And if not, has it been a frame or a lens that people have used in the past? Um, well, I think, I think as far as I know, I have made up the term. So, um, I, so I, I, the way I would answer that is, not yet. Um, I, I hope that people use the frame. Um, I'm using the frame, I think, fruitfully in other projects that I'm doing. But I think that I think that you can read other people's work through it, though. Um, for example, I think that um, some of the great work that's being done uh, around sort of anti-monopoly um, and uh, you know that sort of the new Brandeis school it's sometimes called um, and that that sort of policy work and not just the policy work but the but the legal scholarship as well um i think can be read through this frame in terms of seeking kind of a rebalancing or a reallocation of coordination rights because they're sort of saying that um you know capital uh, either you could say big firms or i think the a little bit more precise sort of big capital or a certain sector of financial capital has too many coordination rights um, and, you know, sort of too generous an allocation of coordination rights to be, I guess, more accurate because not just too many um, sort of magnitude and type. Um, and and then meanwhile, there's a sort of other sort of policy reform proposals out there, including, you know, ones that I've put out uh, that say that others in the economy should have more coordination rights. I actually think you can understand not just antitrust, but other areas, related areas of law, at least through this frame as well. So for me, I mean, partly because this is just what I'm thinking about, I think we can understand the antitrust and labor interaction, uh, antitrust and labor law interaction this way. So I would say that if you actually back up again, and one way we can look at what's happened over the last few decades since the 1970s is that... Um, Within antitrust, the allocation of coordination rights to large firms, to big capital, has you know become more generous. It's become bigger, and I think that there's been a lot of great work, you know, current work in antitrust law that has been pointing that out. Um, at the same time, I think we can say that the allocation of coordination rights to smaller players in our economy has contracted, has become much more difficult to access those rights, and I think that we should understand that in terms of um, the the rights that small players directly have under antitrust to coordinate. That's a problem I talk about in the paper, but equally or probably more importantly, we should also understand it in terms of the contraction or um, the the contraction of coordination rights under labor law as well. So just in the sense of a number of labor scholars, um, you know, Carl Clare from a couple of decades ago, um, uh, other labor scholars currently have pointed out that um, American labor law has largely failed workers. It's just increasingly difficult to access those coordination rights. So anyway, I think that you can actually understand the whole interaction through this frame. Mm, yeah. And it really struck me that, you know, one of the things that you did really effectively, I thought, in your paper was sort of explain how we got to the particular allocation of coordination rights that we in practice seem 
today. But part part of the history that really struck me that you told was that in a sense, I almost felt like the sort of early history of antitrust policy, people were talking about effectively talking about what you're referring to as coordination rights, even though maybe they weren't using that term. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like sort of what was happening back then and how that relates to kind of the way you're proposing we rethink antitrust policy today. Sure, 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 sure. Yes. And I think um, if I may to like reach even, well, I talk about it a little bit in the paper, I guess. Um, So I think there's sort of two relevant phases here. So there's kind of like the phase when legislators were first talking about federal anti-monopoly legislation and actually passing it. And I would say, yeah, so they didn't use the word, but I think that their frame of reference was um, quite a bit closer, actually, to the frame of reference I think that we should return to um, in many respects. And they, I think that they, they were looking at economic coordination and at coordination rights in a pragmatic way is it socially or economically harmful or not and they were and, and then as they were doing that they were slicing up sort of types of economic coordination in a different way than we would so i would say that no matter what no matter what your legal regime is you've got to have categories of coordination and sort of categories sort of conventionally accepted categories of economic coordination we could do it totally differently than the system we have now but you know there's got to be something and um I think that the time when anti-monopoly legislation was being considered was a time of, you know, clearly great change um, in terms in terms of uh, the law, but also in terms of business reality. Sort of an, a national market was emerging for the first time, right? And that's a lot of what this was coming out of. Um, there were big changes happening in corporate law. Um, Across, you know, across state corporate law at the time that were connected in various ways. Um, and there was a perception, though, that the states individually cannot contain the power of these great trusts that really are now operating in this new national market, which they have themselves created through their business practices, through building these railroads, and, um, and also through rewriting the New Jersey corporation's uh, law eventually, um, and, and you know, do it, so both through both through legal construction and through direct sort of business, sort of creating new business practices, including the trusts themselves. There, you know, this new um, national market was coming into existence, and I think legislators were grappling with how to deal with that, and that if you and and. And just a little bit of background to that, that there had always been when when, you know, markets were a little bit more local, there had been coordination at a more regional or local level that was just traditional. And this is sort of well documented. Um, It's not exactly in the paper, but it's well documented, I think, by sociologists and historians, um, you know, that trade associations um, that effectively fixed prices were very common. They just weren't happening at a national scale. Um, and that generally there was some check on that. Um, that, you know, it's, it's sort of not that the the law, the common law wouldn't accept that um, you're just going to fix prices at, you know, the, the highest rate possible. That, you know, there is a notion of fairness to the consumer um, that's internalized, but it was much more an 
it was much more about being reasonable unless there was not a, at common law a per se prohibition on that type of economic coordination, that kind of direct price coordination. Also, just one other point to make, I mean, so there's in the paper, I talk a lot about this idea of the firm exemption and that we have really in our contemporary moment sort of reified the firm and also sort of made it the paradigm um, site of economic coordination. And that not only was it not always that way in a couple of different respects in the respect that inter-firm coordination was was far more, the law was far more tolerant of it, but also in the respect that the firm as we know it now sort of didn't exist at that time, right? That the firm as we know it now, for the most part, came into existence with the trust that the, you know, these great trusts that sort of initially had to organize themselves through the trust mechanism because it wasn't possible under state corporate law to sort of directly merge, right? That is what set the template for the modern uh, American corporation that's still with us. So in both of those respects, I think the firm exemption as we sort of know it now, and as you know, Bork was sort of taking for granted when he was writing in the 60s and the 70s sort of didn't exist when legislators were grappling with these questions. So um, what to sort of cut through, what what do I think they thought about coordination rights and economic coordination and how they would organize it? Well, if I had to to say, you know, obviously all the legislators weren't speaking with one mind, but I but from my reading of the legislative record, um, I think it's fair to say that the approach here, they were responding, first of all, to a social movement, the anti-monopoly movement, which was really a movement of workers and farmers that wanted um, wanted federal anti-monopoly legislation to check the power of these trusts in a way that they weren't able to um, accomplish at the local or state level. Uh, and so they definitely didn't want to harm the coordination rights of those very people, sort of farmers, small proprietors, and workers themselves. Um, and what they did want to do is to contain the coordination rights that the trusts had sort of just like created for themselves through this innovative new legal mechanism. So just like we talk about Uber innovating uh, the legal and business form today, I mean, the trusts were very innovative in that way. And, um, and um, yeah, so I, so I, so, so extremely briefly, I, if I had to, if I had to sort of um, sum up what I think their approach to coordinate to how to sort, put it this way, how to sort permissible and impermissible economic coordination. I don't think it was centered on the firm at all. In fact, I think if anything, they endorsed something like the reverse of the firm exemption, not in the sense that they didn't think business firms could exist. Of course, they thought so, but rather in the sense that the concentration of economic power and to be more specific, the concentration of economic coordination rights in these mm -hmm. entirely new type of business firms was exactly what the statute was designed to address and contain. So I would say that legislators were looking to redistribute those coordination rights to ordinary people. And so really, that's really the opposite of the attitude that they took to the coordination rights of um, small players, farmers, workers, and even small proprietors, who I don't think the legislators intended to um, to police their coordination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And 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 I gotta say, like one thing that like kind of blew my mind was like the I want to say almost like refreshing or like kind of. 
scandalous almost sort of honesty of some of the scholars from this sort of late period that you're talking about, sort of kind of expressing like sort of almost like an explicit bias toward firms and against labor. I mean, it's like, we can kind of see it in practice today, but I just was like, wait a minute. They're just like straight up saying it. Yes. Yes, exactly. No. So that's right. And that, and that is kind of like phase two, I would say when the court sort of then interpreted the Sherman act, it was, and, um, and then sort of like create sort of created the first phase of the category, like sort of legal categories of coordination that I think we still have today, including um, the firm exemption and sort of this sort of rigid distinction between unilateral and multilateral or unilateral and bilateral conduct, which was really, I don't think, I think it would have been very, very alien to the legislators who after all were, I mean, I think I just have to make this point that they, they were their prime target. I mean, if they had, a phenomenon in the world that was their prime target that they were trying to capture with this legislation, which they struggled with drafting, um, then it was the trust. And those trusts, like the Standard Oil Trust, like in 1889, were much, much closer to a firm than they were to anything we could call price fixing. They were firms in all but name. And they became single firms in the 1890s when corporate law liberalized enough for them to just directly merge. And the legislators definitely talked about them as firms a lot of the time. And yet that's the coordination that they wanted to target, right? So that's why I really think that they did not have in mind this notion of the firm exemption. And then to come back to the point that you just made, I do think that, of course, they weren't, you know, that there were others um, who had a different view and who just, but who also in their own way, mm. actually, that's what's interesting. Like some of the um, people I think you're, you're thinking of um, in their own way, weren't exactly subscribing to the firm exemption either, because I think that they, a lot of those sort of like conservative legal scholars um, and commentators in that sort of 1890 to 1920 period um, would have been more okay with small business corporation uh, cooperation or, or sort of direct price fixing among businessmen um, than they would be uh, then they would be okay with coordination among like mine workers. And because of, I believe it's quite direct bias um, that you would not hear articulated today. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so you described that as phase two. I mean, am I, am I correct in thinking that like more or less phase, phase three is sort of Bork, the new antitrust paradigm, the Chicago school, and this shift to a new language? Because I mean, it seems to me that like phase two is sort of like an in some respects, almost like an ideological shift in the language and conception of antitrust policy. And phase three is kind of the same thing, like another ideological shift. And you specifically point to language and the way that language gets used to sort of facilitate or even camouflage that ideological change. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I can certainly see the argument for calling the Chicago School and Bork phase three. I think I would actually call the New Deal order phase three, and then I would call Bork and the Chicago School phase four, even though even though it's not exactly, I mean, in terms of time, they, they totally overlap. Like the Chicago School starts in like the late 40s, you know, and even though they hadn't sort of like gained ascendancy yet, um, intellectually, it started at that time. And so I would say um, 
again, it's not precise historical periods, but yeah, I would say phase three is a new deal order. And that again, just really briefly, you didn't ask me about that, but I just <laughs> feel like I should say that even though I, even though it's not like the new deal specific, it, it's not so much in, in the arena of antitrust law, but in the arena of rebalancing coordination rights overall. So I think this is highlights the point I was making at the beginning is that I don't think that this framework is actually just about antitrust law. Um, and you know, in, in the new deal era, because for the first time, robust collective bargaining rights for workers were recognized under law. And just as important, I think the government at various levels took on sort of active coordination of markets, which I also think is a form of coordination. It's less sort of an issue of coordination rights, but that's that's also coordination of markets, took that on in various direct ways. Um, that sort of counterbalanced the power of big capital, which was the sort of original target of antitrust um, in various ways. And um, and then I think I also think that whether you call it exactly New Deal antitrust or mid-century antitrust, um, also sort of it, it did not erase the firm exemption that had kind of like gotten written into the law in phase two, uh, into the judge-made law in phase two, but it it did it did contract it in various ways and put a check on corporate power in various ways. So for example, a, a big a big sense in which that's true is um, in the policing of vertical restraints. So. Um, you know, many, many more limits in mid-century antitrust on the type of uh, contractual restraints that relatively powerful firms can place on upstream or downstream firms that are smaller and have less bargaining power. Um, and somebody whose work I would point to, who, which I think is really useful in this way, is um, Brian Kalachi, who's actually an economist, but has done a lot of work on the the sort of legal and economic history of franchising and how sort of mid-century antitrust was fundamentally a challenge um, to that whole business model and how they sort of actively lobbied, um, you know, against strong enforcement uh, against vertical restraints, the franchising lobby did. Um, and the reason, I mean, I think that's interesting in its own right, but it's also, again, such a parallel to today's economy um, and the way that relatively powerful firms or platforms in the gig economy or the fissured workplace are able to um, control the conduct of smaller firms in their orbits um, without actually bringing them within the firm. And so therefore, without having to take on responsibilities under, for example, labor law uh, for the workers of those smaller firms. So anyway, that's kind of phase three. And then all, all of these, what I agree with kind of the meta point you're making is that all there's ideology or we could just say values associated with every single one of these phases, including the, you know, whatever I would prescribe as the preferable one. It's not that it's, you know, it's not that I think I have a view that, that abstracts from values. Um, rather, I think my point is that in every one of these ways of slicing up economic coordination and every one of these ways of allocating coordination rights, there's going to be values. Include and, and so let's do that consciously. I think that the thing that is different about phase four and the Chicago School and Bork is that there is um, a claim tap sometimes tacit and sometimes quite explicit that there are no values involved here, that this is a science um, and this is, you know, so really this is just like objective neutral science. And I just think that's total nonsense. And if there's one sort of overarching aim I have in the paper, it's, it's to contribute to, to showing that um, and, and, the, and then to contribute to kind of saying that the thing that we have to do is to sort of consciously take on that project and to say that 
okay, like allocating coordination rights is something we do as a society. It's something we do in the law. And so let's sort of figure out how to do it. And then the paper doesn't go on to do that. It's sort of, but it's trying to 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 clear the ground for, for that project and to say that the current conventional categories of coordination, which I could, we didn't get to that, but that are kind of um, enshrined in phase four, um, that we should question those and that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take those as the dictates of independent, neutral, objective science because they're not. They embody um, ultimately moral values or normative values of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about the argument you were making was that you know you pointed out the way in which the language of and I'll, I'll t- totally take your point the fourth phase, <laughs> as it were, right uh, of 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 antitrust policy that the language sort of normalizes the firm exemption and camouflages the fact that a firm is literally a form of coordination as well. And in fact, as you point out, like Coase's theory of the firm literally says that. And if we think that's true, then there's really no reason to distinguish between intra-firm and inter-firm or even intra-whoever sort of coordination as a per se matter. Yeah, as a per se matter. I mean, so I I would would actually even like make my claim more modest and say that maybe there is a reason to distinguish and maybe there isn't, but like we should have a debate about it. We shouldn't just assume it. I mean, the, the, the categories currently almost make it impossible to have that debate. It's taken to be just shown since Bork and Williamson that one, you know, that one of these forms of coordination um, is, you know, results in a decrease in overall welfare and the other one does not. And this is just an article of faith that if it refers to social science at all, I would say refers to like 1970s social science as opposed to anything, right? I mean, so if it seems to me, even if you think, and this is, I, I don't accept this as you probably can guess, but even if you think that lower consumer prices should be the only goal of antitrust law and of economic regulation, even then it's an open empirical question how that is actually best achieved. If you broaden it a little bit, you think consumer welfare should be the only goal. It's an empirical open question, um, you know, so like the, the kind, I mean, just to give, to give a little example to kind of illustrate that. So there's this assumption that firms create efficiencies, they create productive efficiencies, and those result in cost savings, right? Okay, again, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's true in some contexts. Maybe it's not true in other contexts. Maybe some trade associations of otherwise sort of like in, independent or interdependent um producers or service providers or sellers or whatever they are can replicate a lot of those efficiencies and yet promote other values that we decide we like, like economic democracy or actually relative independence or, you know, all kinds of things. Like that paper doesn't really get into having that debate, but it's just trying to say that there is a debate to be had here. Um, but a quick example of why I think we should we should revisit these like old assumptions is that um, Okay, the very, very basic idea. Well, if you have a plant and then, you know, you um, you can realize economies of scale by like growing that plant um, rather than uh, having lots of little plants or something. I mean, again, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not for a particular industry. But even if you grant that that's true, how does that, in, you know, first of all, how does that in any way show the efficiencies of sort of multi-plant firms. Secondly, this is all about manufacturing. All of that, you know, to the extent that they relied, you know, sort of made a a straight empirical case at all, it certainly wasn't about today's service economy. How does any of that apply to Uber or to, you know, any 
any sort of service economy firm, what exactly are the economies of scale that are being realized that are going to result in cost savings? And then the big second part to that is that's all assuming that consumer welfare should be the only goal, which I do not think it should be. But um, right. But even within that, we should really unsettle that per se rule. Mm. So I want to return to that, the, the last point you made. But but before that, I, you know, one thing that I found really powerfully sort of compelling in the argument that you made was that you pointed out like how under current antitrust doctrine, you can shift a certain form of coordination from being like per se impermissible to per se permissible simply by changing the business form in which you engage in the activity. And I was like, oh, wait, well then that just seems like surely we have to be thinking about like things in like ways and not in this purely formalistic sort of way. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. So are you referring to kind of the gig economy examples there, I think? Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so no, that's great. And I think, I think that that's a perfect way to complete what I was just trying to say, you know, which is that I think that the, the so a, the fact that we have sort of largely this service economy in, the, you know, our current first world country, um, that together with the fact that business forms have been changed up in so many ways, um, you know, since the 1980s or so, that kind of creates this exactly the situation where you have these like very like cases um, that seem to be treated in just polar opposite ways by the law for entirely formalistic reasons, which probably weren't entirely formalistic in the 1950s, you know, because it, some of those assumptions, I still don't think is warranted then, but some of those assumptions at least made more sense. But when you're talking about like Uber getting to price fix, but Uber drivers not getting to engage in price coordination, then you're, you're really getting to a point where like how well, this does not make sense, right? So let's revisit this. Yeah, yeah. That was what really struck me. It's like it's like to say that it's per se legal for Uber to do it, but it would be per se illegal for the drivers to do it on their own. Just seems bizarre. Yeah, yeah right? definitely. And that I mean, definitely. And it's it's a it's a little bit more complicated in Uber's case because I actually don't think it's even as a matter of current black letter law, I don't think it's per se legal for them to do it. Um, but it's clearly being treated that way, right? It's it, really is being treated that way. And so, and I think that Uber is really interesting in that way because it pushes the boundaries of this firm exemption um, by engaging in all of this price coordination beyond its own firm boundaries in a way that's not even clearly vertical restraints, which are, you know, something that McDonald's and other franchisers do. And um, anyway, but yes, gen I, I generally completely agree with that. Yeah. So Sanjita, from, from an antitrust doctrine perspective, I mean, what do you think are the implications of sort of looking at this question through a kind of coordination rights lens? Like, how should that affect, from a policy perspective, how we think about interfirm versus intrafirm coordination? Yeah. So, in answer to your question, I think that there's sort of two tasks. There's, you know, once we have kind of revealed and agreed that there is this implicit allocation of coordination rights that's always happening in antitrust law, then the first step is to become conscious about that and to decide about what the criteria should be for allocating coordination rights. I think that's a good conversation to have. And I think that um, two really good criteria would be balancing 
coordination rights so that, you know, redistributing them, making, you know, making the allocation of coordination rights more egalitarian, in my opinion. So I guess you could just call that um, egalitarianism. And then um, some conception of fairness that can't entirely be reduced to egalitarianism. So that's very general, but I think that's, those are two sort of like sets of criteria that we should use at a normative level. And then in terms of sort of specific policies, but also in terms of sort of um, specific legal standards that are used in antitrust law, um, what direction do I think that would go? And just the caveat that I don't think that I make the case for that, this, any of this in the paper, but I think that this is the direction that I think that it goes. Um, so clearly one that I think that I use as an example in this paper is to expand coordination rights for small players in the economy. So that would be to really look um, more at more at expanding permissions for inter-firm coordination, not only for sort of workers who have been left beyond the bounds of labor and employment law, although certainly and perhaps most urgently for them, but beyond that, businesses, microenterprises, and even, I would say, sometimes coordination between rather large firms if it's for an appropriate public interest purpose. So for example, um, an example of this that I always kind of have in mind is coordination between um, the different fashion brands in order to... Um, stabilize and increase the rates that are paid to small suppliers in places like Bangladesh, where those suppliers do not have the bargaining power or other market power to bring those rates up and therefore to bring um, wages and labor standards above the sort of sweatshop conditions that they're currently in. And so I think there's all kinds of coordination, inter-firm coordination that is socially beneficial um, that we should revisit. So that's kind of one set of policy proposals. And then the second set is a set that is really worked on by um, folks other than me um, regarding sort of um, sort of contracting the firm exemption and sort of um, revisiting the very broad allocation of coordination rights that we have granted to big capital, to big firms, sort of um, most obviously, I suppose, in the sense of the, um, in the sense of merger and monopoly regulation, especially merger regulation, um, but also in the sense of abusive conduct by dominant firms. And I think importantly, also in the sense of vertical restraints, which I mentioned before, the types of contractual restraints that firms are able, and I think I would be most concerned with vertical restraints, um, in, in, I would be most concerned with um, restraints that, that more powerful firms place on less powerful firms. I won't revisit that. So that would be kind of um, a second set of proposals. Um, and then kind of at the level of legal standards um, that kind of maybe suffuse um, all of these different policy debates would be, of course, the consumer welfare standard and what role um, this idea of consumer welfare should play in antitrust analysis and um, in debate about changes we make to the law. So, um, you know, again, if I can go back to phase one for a moment, the legislators talked about consumers for sure. They did, but they did not sort of make the, they didn't sort of talk about the consumer in this abstract, um, abstract sense that the contemporary consumer welfare standard does. So for example, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, I actually forget at the moment exactly which senator it was. It might have been Sherman, um, you know, refers to Farmer, farmers and small suppliers as essentially getting screwed from both sides, in both as producers and as consumers by the monopolies, because they're sort of subject to rate setting um, by the railroads um, 
on both ends in terms of bringing their product to market, but also in terms of the supplies that they need. And so that goes, that runs throughout the legislative debate is this idea of really viewing um, the ordinary person in the economy as both a producer and a consumer. Both are relevant. You know, I think that there are a lot of us who want to br bring a little bit more of a producer-centric um, perspective to antitrust law, but I don't think that's to the exclusion of consumers. I actually think that's also very important. Um, but it's just not abstracting um, to, to just arrive at one or the other because most people are both. Um, certainly most ordinary people are both, right? And that was the distinction that the legislators used more, um, you know, sort of between sort of um, John D. Rockefeller and the ordinary person who's sort of both either a worker or a farmer or something um, and a consumer. And um, therefore it's not just about lowering prices because that person's welfare is impacted both by him or her being able to get fair prices for what he or she produces and by being able to pay a fair price for the necessities of life and of business. Um, so I think that the consumer welfare standard is totally ahistorical. I don't think that it has a basis um, in, you know, you know, in precedent in that sense. Um, I also, as you probably could tell from the paper, don't think that it receives sort of independent justification from this kind of um, idea of an independent economic science. Um, so I, I think that looking at the, you know, sort of taking another look at the consumer welfare standard very much needs to be part of this debate. And we have to find, again, other criteria for sorting permissible and impermissible forms of economic coordination. Mm. So Sanjukta, I know that this paper is part of a book project you're working on. In closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of where you hope the book project is going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, the paper is separate from the book project, but as I I've sort of started working on the book project before I, um, before I wrote the paper, but now I'm very much sort of, um, approaching the book project through the lens of the paper. So the way the, the paper sort of looks, uh, sorry, we've talked about the paper. The book um, looks at antitrust history sort of through these phases, actually, that we've been sort of roughly through those four phases, actually, um, through this frame of the allocation of coordination rights and kind of goes into a lot more detail um, than the paper does on exactly what was going on um, with allocation of coordination rights in each of those phases, um, sort of ending with today. And well, I should say it will have done all those things by early next year. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I, I, I really look forward to reading it. And maybe we can do another interview when, when it's ready. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Would you agree that these two products taste similar? Yes. Very similar? Yes. Yeah. So then do you think that we, as the Coke brand, would have a case against the Coke Zero brand? Because they've infringed upon our taste. It's a novel theory. What can we do in... Um, How long would that take? Mm, well, we could write a threatening letter within a few hours. Okay, that's uh, very good. So I want to do that. We could do that. Okay. Um, is there anything that hap has happened recently that makes you this concerned? My neighbor had a graduation party yeah. for his uh, daughter, junior high graduation, and cooler was filled with that.
there is the possibility that, that consumers will start drinking that, thinking they're drinking that. That's exactly so, what. That's exactly our point of bringing right. you in today. I'm glad you understand what we're what our case is. Well, let me let me ask you what what would your what would your proposed end game be? What would what would your that they were crushed and Ron, their director, was in the fetal position, crying under the copier, crying. Da, 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 da.